Just Some Podcast Media. The thoughts and opinions on Just Some Podcast are of the hosts and guests and do not represent the views of organizations that employ them or they volunteer for. They are also not responsible for spontaneous black holes or nuclear wars that may occur. You You have been 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 warned. Welcome, 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 everybody, to another fun-filled, exciting, and special edition of Just Some Podcast. This is Tom. Hey, this is Ben. Tom, how you doing, bud? I am doing marginally well, I would say, at this point in time. Busy. Busy, 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 busy. And then add on a shake more of busy. Yes, I, I know the feeling. Um, it's been pretty busy here as well. I mean, we're you know working on getting the COVID vaccines out, but you know we're also still seeing some telehealth, and we're still getting a whole lot more people coming back into the clinics to be seen. So it's not a bad problem to have. That you know, I mean, it's a good problem to have, but it is a good problem, but it's a problem. And also, I've noticed there was a sharp decline in complaints that. You thought in your head when you saw them on your schedule, does this really need to be seen? When COVID first came out and they were like, don't go outside, suddenly toe pains at 2 a.m. disappear. Right. And now that they're like, hey, you know, one in four American adults that are eligible for COVID vaccines have been vaccinated and, you know, some states are opening up, suddenly knee pain from three years ago is starting to flare up again, I noticed. Well, COVID's over now, so they had to get that out there. Yes, that thinking of COVID being over is what's going to cause COVID to come back again. <laughs> so they might want to chill out on that. Unfortunately, yeah. I mean, you know, we have had some decreased numbers. We've even had some schools here drop the mask requirement. Oh, so we'll. I mean, we'll see what happens. Yeah, I mean, the data does say that schools were pretty safe, but I I could probably point to a couple things as to why. (laughs) Maybe maybe lifting the mass requirements prematurely may not be helpful. But what do I know? I don't know. What do you know? Slim and nothing. That's the two things I'm sticking with. Well, all right, then. Well, Ben, I want to talk to the crowd a little bit before we get started about the special edition that we're doing tonight. So Ben and I were talking and we decided we wanted to do something fun and Ben is an avid camper and we were talking about maybe doing some camping safety and it struck my mind and let's just put this uh, warning out right now that there's going to be a lot of mispronunciations of words in foreign (laughs) languages that I don't speak and I'm okay with that. So I don't need people to email me about how bad I butchered some names. We know we're going to butcher it. As a matter of fact, we're going to start off with butchering the name of the very incident itself right here in a minute. So I was thinking to myself, Ben, camping is cool, and we could talk about the safety of camping. But you know what else would be cool, Ben? What's that, Don? Have you ever heard of this crazy thing called the Atlov Pass incident? Not prior to talking to you about it, no. So, which was weird to me, because I guess I just thought it was one of those things like, oh, everybody's heard of it. You Maybe you didn't know anything about it, but you didn't, you know. And he's like, no. I'm like, how the hell? Am I weird because I know that? I don't think I'm weird about it because I knew it. But anyways, I was like, it's the ultimate camping medical mystery. 
That is true. Uh, and the more that I've researched it, it's odd. There's lots of oddness. If you want to go down any sort of internet rabbit hole, this is one of those incidents where you could literally lose three months of your life, your job, your family, internet access, <laughs> studying this if you, you got too far sucked into it. This is beyond a rabbit hole. This is like the black hole of internet stories. There's a few of them, and this is one of them. Because no matter how you look at it, no matter what theory you believe, there's holes. Even if you think you have it all figured out, somebody could point out some piece of information or evidence that contradicts or isn't covered, and you just find yourself scratching your head going, well, I don't know then. The way that I had it, heard it explained in one of the videos that I was watching about this was it's kind of like a jigsaw puzzle where you think you got everything figured out and then there's still more pieces. You know what's weird is that's the same way I explained it to my wife, and I hadn't heard that. But what I said to her was, it's a jigsaw puzzle that you're getting a piece, you know what that piece looks like. And then you start putting the pieces together, and you realize it doesn't look like the box. <laughs> like, wait a second, this is a, the puzzle I bought. Like, what is this puzzle? Like, it keeps changing, or there's pieces missing, or there's extra pieces there, and you just can't make them all fit. And it is certainly... Interesting. Unfortunately, it's also one of those things, and I think it goes against our human nature, which is why I think we're so obsessed with it as humans, is that nobody will ever be able to tell us what happened. Like, there's no way to figure it all out. Though, as we're going to discuss tonight, there are a couple good theories about at least how it started. Yeah, I think so. So, before we get into that, you can find us Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, all at Just Some Podcast. Our website's www.justsomepodcast.com. Our email, email us and tell us how badly we butchered all these names. Admin at justsomepodcast.com. Don't forget to check out all of our other shows we have from Just Some Podcast Media. We got Polly and Amazing with Buried Pleasures and Nurse Papa with David. So make sure you check those out wherever you download your podcast at. Tom, let's just say they want to help us out. What can they do? Well, they can go to our website. They can scroll down to just about the bottom and they find that Amazon affiliate link. Click on that first, then go do their Amazon shopping and add things to their basket like they normally would. Anything they buy from that point forward helps out the show. We'd really appreciate it. And it costs them nothing. Something else they could do that would really help me out is start listening to more of Barry Pleasures with Polly and Amazing because she is driving me nuts because she thinks she needs more listeners. So that would really help me out personally if you, the listeners, would listen to the listening on her show. You could listen to the listening of the listens. Yeah, wait a second. I think I said that one too many times. But the point is they know what I'm talking about. And it would make her happy and I would get a third less text messages. So we love Pollyanna. We love Nurse Papa. Please give them a listen. They are great shows. I agree, Tom. Well, are you ready for the story that you may have missed? Yes, because I really want to get into this episode. I want to talk about the Dyatlov Pass incident. So, story that you may have missed is probably not one that you've actually missed. Tom, you know, we've done the COVID vaccine episodes with Pollyanna and Jeff, and we talked a lot about Moderna and Pfizer because those were the two that were out when we recorded that episode. Well, since then, Johnson & Johnson had released their vaccine. And of course, it had some benefits and that it was only one shot versus the two. And, you know, the effectiveness was a little bit decreased in studies. But it also had really good, really good storage capabilities and it was easier True. to handle. So there was pluses and minuses. Absolutely. Until this week. <laughs> Oops. 
So an expert advisory committee to the CDC uh, decided Wednesday it needed more time to consider whether to recommend to resume administering the COVID-19 vaccine made by Johnson & Johnson. So they initially had called for, between the CDC and the FDA, they called for a voluntary pause after receiving reports of serious side effects in six women who'd received the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. They plan to reconsider a recommendation within the next 10 days, declined to vote on a question of whether vaccines might continue. So the committee heard the details of the cases. So it was six women aged 18 to 48, each developed a severe blood clotting disorder called cerebral venous sinus thrombosis, or CVST. Within six to 13 days after receiving the vaccine, there were no factors identified that the women that would have raised the risk for serious blood clots. There have been about 7.2 million doses of the one-dose vaccine has been administered in the United States. The CDC anticipates there may be a couple more cases over the next couple of weeks, but currently that's where it sits is that the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is on pause while they continue to do some more investigation. As I said, this has been all over social media, the news, anywhere that you uh, might have my email at work, you know, because it's a thing that we're dealing with. So I'm sure it's not a story that people have missed, but we wanted to make sure we have the most appropriate information out there. This is the time of recording, so we wanted to discuss that. So Tom, what are your thoughts? So just because when this comes out, it's probably going to be a little time from when we're recording it. So April 12th is when the voluntary stop order came out. And again, as you pointed out, six women out of roughly 7.2 million doses. Those are pretty good odds. Not for those six people that were scared for their life, and I'm not making light of that. But you do have to realize from a rational point of view that while I agree with the CDC and everybody to say, hey, let's take a pause. We're having this unknown side effect. I also would like to point out it's out of an abundance of caution. And I do stress the word abundance, an abundance of caution, and that they voluntarily are doing it, that there is also a large difference between the Johnson & Johnson and the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, which are mRNA vaccines versus the vector or virus vector, which is what the Johnson Johnson is. So again, I don't want people, misinformation is, you know, always rampant with COVID, with the vaccines, etc. It's okay to have questions. It's okay to want to know more information. Just make sure that you're getting it from a reputable source and that the facts are straight. Because there's going to be a lot of I am sure helter-skelter, shit thrown against the wall, mudslinging coming about here very quickly about vaccines. And the vast majority of it's not going to be true. And when I say vast majority, I mean 99.9999% is probably not going to be accurate or true. So when you're seeing this meme on Facebook about how unsafe vaccines are and this proves it, it doesn't prove it. So let's just be clear. And perhaps don't get information from like websites like, you know, I hate vaccines.com or <laughs> vaccinescauseautism.com or, you know, the, the multitude. I mean, when Tom's talking reputable sources, there are reputable sources that are out there. Let's just say hypothetically, you don't trust the CDC. Okay. There are still other sites out there that have reputable information that is available. And lots of times it'll link back to official studies. And you can even pull up official studies and read those. I mean, there's lots of reputable information out there, like Tom was saying. Well, let's say you don't believe the CDC because you're a tinfoil hat wearing goon, okay? Let's say you're one of them. Then what I would suggest is finding an outside independent of the CDC website that is also reputable. Guess what? 
they exist. Not everything falls under a CDC umbrella. So there is lots of information out there, but as Ben pointed out, there is the, this fits the criteria I want to make me feel right.com type websites. Don't stick with those. Try and look at things that have, you know, actual studies versus I pulled seven people that were standing in line at the local Taco Bell and they told me they don't believe in the vaccine either. Therefore, America doesn't believe in the vaccine. That is not how you should deal with your information. Are you lacking financial direction or need a second opinion? If so, MyNP Advisor is a virtual financial planning practice that focuses on working with nurse practitioners, and they've developed a unique process that evaluates five key areas of your financial life. They call it the Check My Vitals procedure, and for $500, it addresses some of your biggest financial concerns, like, am I saving enough to maintain my lifestyle in retirement? Is my family protected from a catastrophe? Do my investments match my tolerance for risk? Listen, if you have more questions than answers, then you're probably due for a checkup. So click on the link in the show notes to learn more about the five benefits of checking your vitals. And if you're ready to move forward, you can even schedule your appointment directly from that link. Yeah, the link is down in the show notes. It's a great place to start. Securities and advisory services offered through Royal Alliance Associates Incorporated, member FINRCSPIC. Additional advisory services offered through Premier Financial Partners, LLC, leader Royal Alliance, MyNP Advisor, primary financial partner, just on podcast, ring guest or affiliate. Well, people, get your big girl panties on and strap yourself in because we're going to be talking about the Dyatlov Pass incident. This is a rabbit hole. I mean, and there's been tons of movies made about this, tons of books, because uh, there's so much speculation. Now, this happened in 1959, and there's still not definitive answers. So, I mean, of course, as I have said before, and maybe it needs to become my key phrase here, is that there are people who try to apply logic to illogical situations, and sometimes shit just happens. But you want to apply logic to it. And so that's where some of the conspiracy theories come from for any, and I don't just mean the Dyatlov Pass incident, I mean any major quote-unquote mystery, there's going to be conspiracy theories around it because people are trying to apply logic to it. Let's talk about where this happened. So it happened in the Ural Mountains in Russia. So we're dealing with a foreign country, foreign languages. There's going to be some errors in transcription, in... There's going to be errors in saying names. And this is one of those theories that if you read 10 stories on some of these bits of information, and there's lots of information, you might find seven stories that agree and three that don't. And then on other parts of the story, there are 10 different stories. So even if you look this up, we're never all going to be on the same page. There's just too many pages. And sadly, it's all speculation because no one survived. Yeah, well, I was going to say, the dead bodies aren't speculation. They're dead. Ben is right, though. How did they get there? Because nobody knows. And then as we're about to lay out this evidence, and this is a medical mystery show, so like there are medical injuries, but we're going to lead you and weave the whole story together that leads up to the end, which is the medical part. So this is a a new type of show for us we're doing tonight. It is medical, but it kind of leads through a story to get to that part. But as Ben already said, this is all speculation. Nobody survived. Yeah, spoiler alert from 1959, that nobody was around to tell the story, except for there was one person, he started the journey, but did not actually make it to the trip. So we do have some firsthand information from a live person that started the trip, but did not go onto the hike. We did recover some diaries and some photographic evidence up to a point. 
So it starts off, and again, here's where weird things start happening. A group of nine students, all in their early 20s, from the Ural Polytechnic Institute, which is a college in Russia, decide that they're going to go on a hiking trip. And again, as I have already said multiple times, and this is one of the first things you'll notice, here is some differences in information. This one's minor, but it's an example of what to expect. Some of the stories and facts and information you will find, I say facts and information, <laughs> some of the information you will find on the story will say that all nine of the students going on this were in Russia, there's actually certifications for hiking and skiing to be able to take other people out hiking and skiing in dangerous areas. All nine students had the highest level of certification available in both hiking and skiing to go out. However, I have also seen other stories where eight of the nine had it and they were taking the last one out on like his final trip to get him certified. So either way, no matter how you cut it, these are nine very experienced, very well-rounded hikers and skiers going out into a well-known area to go hiking and skiing. So the nine students, they're all getting together. They decide they're going to go on this pass, which, by the way, is not named Dyatlov Pass. Yet, Dyatlov is the name of Igor Dyatlov, who was the leader of this expedition. So when we say Dyatlov Pass, at this point in time, it was just a route. I think it was actually called Route Number 5. Because this is also useful information, they had to file an itinerary. So like they filed an itinerary with like the local party saying, hey, we're from this other town. They rode by train for two days, 300 miles to get to this mountain, this Kolat Siaklev. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but that's what we're going to call it. So they get there. They have all this stuff. First weird thing to know about. This mountain, and again, this comes in where translation is a problem, is because I've heard three names the translation of this name. So the first one is the Mountain of the Dead. The second one is uh, Death Mountain, which is not a really great start. And the third one is there's a local native people to this part of Russia called the Manzi, M-A-N-S-I, Manzi people. And their local translation of Kolat Siaklov is don't go there. So no matter how you cut this, not really touristy information being posted about this mountain. Perhaps some warning signs. Yes. No matter what language you speak, it's either called don't go there or you're going to die there. That's not really, you know, helpful if you want to get me to go to this place. So, and I say, I keep saying group of nine because again, they have names that are very hard for me to pronounce and also multiples of them. And this is no different than America, where you might have 10 people, three of them are named Ben, named Tom, named John, whatever. There's a bunch of Yuris and a bunch of Igors. At this point, it would be very difficult to try and keep them all straight. So you have a group of nine. That's what we got, okay? So these nine students pick up a tenth at some point. And this is also one of the weird parts. Have you heard about Sasha when you were doing any of your research, Ben? Somewhat, but not a significant amount. So again, this is... A perfect example of this entire story. So these group of nine pick up a 10th traveler who said, hey, I'm going that way as well. My party has fell apart. Can I join your traveling party and go hiking with you? The group of nine talk for a little while. And this is written in their diary. So we know what happened at this point. And the 10th person that was still alive, he confirmed all this. They talked to this guy for a while. He's much older. They're all in their early 20s. They're all college students. He's in his late 30s. And they said, yeah, sure, you can come on with us. You seem like you got your stuff uh, together. Let's go on this trip. So now we're plus one. We're at a group of 10 getting to the beginning of the trail that these guys are going to head out on. 
The guy they pick up, again, indicative of this entire story, depending on which website, which source of information you use, has three different names. Okay, so he was in the Russian army under a name like Solyev, Solyev. I've also heard him listed as Mikhail in some other things, but in most information sites, they call him Sasha. So that's what I'm saying is even when you find reputable information or from people that were actually there in their diaries, they call him all different names. That's just weird. They describe him as older, having been in the army. There was one weird thing, and I believe it was confirmed at the autopsy, is he has a string of letters that are not in the same languages and do not make any words it tattooed up and down his arm. It's like, that sounds really weird, but, you know, hell, based on the rest of the story, that's probably the least weird thing that's about to happen to these people. So they all start on their journey, and right at the beginning, one of the hikers, who, again, well-experienced, says, hey, I'm starting to have some difficulty with movement. I had a knee injury, and it's flaring up, and I can't make the trip, which to me, Ben is a sign of how things should have went. So obviously he was smart. He knew his limitations. He wasn't trying to push it. He knew this was a very difficult climb. And he was like, hey, I'm not going to slow anybody down or put anybody else in danger because of myself. I'm going to stop the trip, which in all other circumstances would make you think, oh, this is a group of really well put together people. On the theatlovepass.com website, the timeline, where it mentions in this gentleman you're speaking of, um, I'm going to butcher this, but it's Yuri Yudin. Oh, one of the Yuris. They cite that it was sciatica that was causing, that caused him to, to abandon the trip. Yeah, but again, like one website said it was knee pain. One says it's sciatica. So again, we know something was wrong and all evidence points to something was wrong. But again, just like with everything else with this story, it's a little different everywhere you look. So, and here is the basic timeline. So this is around January 28th, 1959. When they filed their plan, they put out that they would be back around February 12th. However, when they arrived at the base of this mountain to get starting on the trek, as they were starting to go out and Yuri was coming back, the leader, Igor, says, hey, this is really rough weather. It's probably going to take us several more days. So now we're expanding the timeline that people are expecting them to be hiking for up to 16 days, okay, which is important towards the end of the story. As they start to head out, it's good information to remember the, the type of conditions they're in. They're in several inches to feet of snow at any point. There's no clear hiking areas. The temperature is around zero degrees Fahrenheit, to negative 40 degrees Fahrenheit with wind gusts anywhere between zero to 60 miles an hour. Not exactly, you know, springtime, you know, <laughs> jaunt through the hills type weather. But again, really well experienced, certified, knowledgeable, healthy young adults that know what they're doing going out. So nobody thought twice. So they began their trek January 31st of 1959, they figure out that the shortest way from uh, this Aspaya River to the Lobsva River. Real Russian. I, yeah, I'm telling you. <laughs> but the shortest way is this, what is now Yatlov's Pass. Uh, so they go back that night to spend the river or the night on the banks of the Aspaya River. February 1st is when they kind of lighten their load. And they so they make a cache to lighten their backpacks and then head out 
on this pass to the next river and says that they started late. They get uh, off their planned route, which I'm sure in blizzard-like conditions, when everything just looks like snow, probably pretty easy to get a little, you know, a little off your normal, normal route. Some of this information, again, comes directly from their diaries. Each hiker had a diary and they were collected. So we know what they were thinking, feeling, etc. Also, there was two cameras on this trip. So there are several photos. If you look this website or uh, look up this incident, you can see pictures of. And there, there's pictures of them smiling out in the snow. And you could see some of these blizzard-like conditions. Now, granted, these aren't, you know, iPhone 12 Pro Max cameras. So don't expect that level of, you know, clarity. But certainly you can see people, the equipment they're wearing, the skis they're wearing, etc. So we do have a great idea of what's happening up to February 1st. So the night of February 1st, they decide to pitch their tent on the north slope of this mountain. Tom, what happens after that? Well, we don't know. But we do know nine people didn't make it back to Mother Russia. So, I mean, is it too soon? 1959? I don't know. But... We do have some speculation about what happens next. We know that for reasons that we don't understand, because they never made it to diary time to log that day's events, they decided to, and it was not a steep slope, but at the base slope of this mountain, to set up their new camp, all right? So the tent they were using wasn't like a little tent. It was a medium-sized, 13-foot by, I don't remember the other dimension, but it's a large enough tent to fit nine people comfortably in blizzard-like conditions. It was modified. So like these, like I said, experienced campers, they had like a pulley system from some of the stuff I was reading so that they can actually keep the center hole, like a teepee, open so that they could keep their cooking stoves and everything on so that there was heat. So like I said, well-prepared, ready to go forwards. In order to set the camp in this particular night, and again, we know this from where it was found, etc., they carved a small dugout with their shovels to create a flat surface to pitch their tent. It also provided them a wall of snow against the wind. Because like I said, remember, at any point in time, they're going between zero and 60 miles per hour of wind gusts. So getting out of the wind was important. One of the things that weirded out all the investigators that then came to the scene is less than a mile down the slope is a tree line that would have provided them excellent protection from all the elements, plus been flat, plus they wouldn't have had to have worked to carve out the snow. One of the theories I've read is that they had already trekked a mile up the slope. They weren't making great time because of the weather and the conditions. So they're guessing that the group got together and said, let's not go a mile backwards. Let's just set up camp here. We have the ability. Let's just set up camp here. And then we don't have to cover that mile again in the morning, which makes sense when you're getting your ass kicked by snow. The other speculative report that I had seen was, which goes back to the eight are certified and one is not, was that they were basically doing this to teach him how to do it, the ways to do this appropriately for his like final certifications. So, and the why probably doesn't necessarily matter. It's that it, this is what happened. They built, you know, they dug down into the, into the snow, created a flat surface the night of February 1st to sleep in. And that was the last that anybody heard of them alive. Correct. From that point forwards, we know that was the last time they made any journal entries, any pictures were taken, etc. So this goes back to the timeline we talked about at the beginning is 
February 12th comes and goes, and nobody thinks anything because, hey, these guys were expected possibly to go out to at least the 16th. So the 16th comes and goes. Nobody hears anything, but that's when some of the family members start going, hey, where are my children at? (laughs) Because I haven't heard from them. So time continues to go on. Now we're even Yuri, who turned around is like, hey, too much time has gone by. Something's wrong. So it took them time because, again, this is not a really well, I shouldn't say well, this is not an easy area for anybody to get around in. That's why mountaineers are going through it. So by February 26th is they finally get the local government gets the military involved. They get some the local Monzi guides and hunters. They get some other people that are known investigators and search and rescue people in the area together. And they go out, start looking, which is when they find the tent. Based on what we're going to talk about here shortly on some of the theories of what happened, it's important to note, again, that you're going to find some difference in the state of the tent. But all accounts will note that the tent is, by all accounts, still standing when they find it. Now, in various states, but it's still upright. And that was February 26th is when they happened upon the tent. They found the tent. They proceeded approximately 1,500 meters downhill. And I say approximate because while they did keep records, again... It's 1959. Yeah, it's 1959. They're not using laser range finders at this point. So 1,500 meters down the hill is when they find the first two dead bodies, which are naked with no shoes on at the base of a small cedar tree that has branches missing up to five meters, which is 15 feet, into the air and the remnants of a small fire. It's also important to note that when the investigators first got there, there was several sets of tracks. And again, this is where the experienced investigators, search and rescue people, etc., come into play because they were able to differentiate the different types of tracks. Also, the tracks were not in any way running or scattered. Like, it looked clearly to the investigators that the tracks were walking Because you can tell by how far apart the tracks are from each other, the distribution of weight, the way they go through the snow, etc. So when you run, your stride is different than when you walk. So they were able to discern that, hey, these guys were walking. They were walking downhill. They weren't running from anything. They weren't carrying anything, which was also weird. Because again, zero degrees at the warmest and up to 40 to 60 mile an hour wind gust. Not really conditions you want to be walking around in your skivvies with no shoes on. But that's how they found the first two dead bodies. At one point, you forgot to mention that they, I think everybody agrees on, is that the tent was cut from the inside, basically to make an escape from the tent. To make an escape from a tent with two perfectly operating openings on either side of it, by the way. Allegedly. Yeah, allegedly, but they got out, clearly. Um, But yeah, so they figured out, so these people were in the tent. They got out of the tent by cutting out of it and then walked. I would surmise that if I am cutting my way out of a tent in my underwear in zero degree weather, which first of all, I wouldn't be in my underwear to start with, but I'm running out of a tent that in such a hurry, I have to cut my way out of it instead of opening the flaps. I'm probably not going to be walking anywhere. So that's like some of the first information that you go, something just isn't adding up. They also think 
that the reason that they are possibly naked, though, at this point in time, is that the other travelers may have stripped their bodies to wear their clothing for extra warmth. Now, granted, that's, you know, conjecture, because we've also talked in past episodes of stuff like paradoxical hyperthermia, where people take off their clothes. So we don't know if it was out of utility or out of madness that these people ended up in the state they were. Right. So, I mean, it is highly possible that they had on more than just that whenever this started and then, yeah. But it's also important to note that regardless of naked, not naked, etc., that they were deemed, again, by people that were experienced in dealing with people in avalanches, people dealing with hiking, search and rescue, the coroners, all these people agreed they died of hypothermia. Yes. A short time later, by the 28th of February, they recovered three more bodies, which this is also one of those, like, huh, made me scratch my head for a second. Three more bodies that seemed to be in a single file line and appeared to be walking back towards the campsite from where the first two dead bodies were found. However, they were closer to the tent than the first two dead bodies. So I'm like, so you walked by them? Like, it doesn't really explain why. Maybe they were a few degrees off. And that's what I'm guessing, because I've seen different diagrams of where all the bodies were. So they're not in a straight line. It just seems weird to me that in that area, you missed those three to find yeah, I don't have a good answer for that. Well, I don't think we're going to get a lot of good answers out of any of this. But Other than that, I think were these the ones that were some that were had been buried under snow. An easy way to try and think about this is they find the bodies in a, three groups. So group one is on the 26th. It's the two dead bodies at the base of the tree. The 28th are the next three dead bodies, which are in the single file line leading back to the tent. And again, no real injuries or I believe there are some bruised knuckles. So one of the, these three that were found did have a fractured skull. No, no, no. That's in the last, that's in the last. Group. Nope. I'm, I'm looking at the report. Well, I'm telling you the reports I looked at said it was in the last group. No, there is some of the last group. Yes. But this one also had, a, I think this was the one that had the fractured skull, but they were as ascertaining that it may have not like it could have been a heel, like an old fracture. Oh, okay. I'd never read that. So that's different. Like, I read that he had a broken nose. So, and yeah, what this says is, you know, so of course all three died of hypothermia as the cause of death, but he was noted that he had a fractured skull, uh, multiple areas of edema and abrasions of his face and his arms. And I forgot that in the first two dead bodies, one of the people seemed to have a lot of injuries to his hands, like cuts and abrasions, burns to his lower body. And the first people to find them, again, were the Monzi, I believe people were the first, the Monzi hunters that were helping the search and rescue were the first ones to find those two. And they said it looked like somebody had flipped the bodies over. It also appears like the resting site had been disturbed prior to the search and rescue. But it's also, you know, wilderness rushes. So my first thought had always been like wild animals or something like that. But all the coroners, all the search and rescue, all the hunters, all the trackers said there was no signs of any disturbance of any of the sites we're about to talk to or the bodies being possibly like normal wildlife, like lynxes, mountain lions, like none of that seems to be part of this story. And again, when you're talking to a group of people that hunt animals for, you know, to stay alive, I'm sure they know what, you know, the animal tracks look like. So, you know, if they're saying, nah, there's none of that around here, then I would tend to believe them. But that is where 
this whole story takes a very sharp downward turn because we can't find four of the people. Well, I shouldn't say we. Right. We as in the storytellers, but they couldn't find four of the nine people. But they do locate them eventually. Oh, they do. (laughs) They do. Approximately 250 yards away. And on May 5th of that same year, so several months later, they find the other four hikers near a small ravine under approximately four meters of snow. Well, they were no longer under four meters of snow. But at that point when this happened on February 26th, they're estimating there had been four meters of snow where those dead bodies were. But no tracks leading to where the dead bodies were. And these four had some unique injuries. Yeah, this is, like I said, when you want to take this thing down the rabbit hole, this is where the jump off to the dark side really begins. So one of the females had major chest fractures. She was missing her tongue, her eyes, part of her lips, some facial tissue, and a fragment of one of her skull of her skull bone. And again, if you're thinking in your head, like I was the very first time, like, hey, obviously some wild animal had gnawed on her. Those are soft tissue, you know, areas, your lips, your tongue, your eyes. Which was my thought, yes. All the reports say, nope, no evidence of any animal eating, tearing, clawing, anything to her face. So that's pretty weird. Then one other person has, I think you might have something pulled up in front of you that has a lot more detail, because all I really saw after that was the next person has a bunch of rib fractures. So the 38-year-old had major chest fractures and was missing his eyeballs. The 24-year-old male, cause of death was listed as hypothermia, and he had some exposed skull bone. And then the 23-year-old male had major skull damage. Uh, multiple fractures to the side of his skull that would have made him unable to move. So out of the four, three did not die of hypothermia. That was also something I read multiple times in every story I read that the coroners and stuff said out of these last four, the three, the female with the eyes missing, the male with the eyes missing, and the gentleman with the crushed skull did not die of hypothermia. They died of the traumatic violent injuries that they sustained. Also. The weird guy that they picked up, Sasha, was the guy with the missing eyes. So this is where things can get kind of weird because now we're talking a great distance away with no discernible means of figuring out how they got there, with injuries that are inconsistent with everybody else, and they're, well, possibly up until today, unexplained of how they received those injuries. Correct. The female that was missing her tongue, her eyes, and such. And then the 24-year-old that died of hypothermia that was in the second group was also radioactive. I had read that it was the two people with the missing eyes that were radioactive. Either way, radiation isn't going to cause your eyes to disintegrate out of your head like that without any other injuries. I'm sure there's some level of radiation that can do it, but not like that. Second of all, they're also theorizing that they were much more radioactive In the beginning, and this may not be something everybody knows, but alpha and beta particles of radiation can actually be washed off your skin with soap and water. So what they're theorizing is that even though they didn't identify positively the radioactive substance that was on them, 
that they were clearly radioactive. Even several months later, they were still way above anything normal. And three, that they were probably more radioactive at the time of their death and that the melting snow basically washed most of the particles off of them. Here's my question for you on that, Tom. Oh, boy. Why would you test for radiation? I don't know. Because I'm the deputy coroner for my county, and I sure as hell don't bring a Geiger counter with me to every death, just in the off chance that someone's radioactive. So that's one of those, like, go, why? Why? No, no, that's a pertinent question to this entire investigation, is, wait a minute, they're in the middle of a mountain pass in the nowhere Russia. Why would you be testing them for radioactivity? Here's the other thing to ask yourself about that. And I'll bring up a third thing here in a minute. But the second thing is going, none of the stuff reported is consistent with radiation sickness. So they didn't even have a reason to think to test for radioactivity. And I've seen several speculations on the radiation. Some of those being that the lamp that they used in the tent had a radioactive material in it. I think it was like thorium, I believe. I somewhat discredit that one just because it's like, well, then why wouldn't all of them, not just two? Or why wouldn't they have found it? They found all their equipment, their tent. So then where's the clock that or the, the substance? And then the other that I had read was that they actually worked at a nuclear facility. I have not heard that one. And these could be, I mean, I'm telling you rabbit holes, dude. <laughs> yes. And the reason I don't necessarily, I can't say that it's 100% out because they were students. So maybe they did some type of work at whatever plant that was near them and college that nobody else apparently knew about is what I'm getting at. So right. nine of these 10 people are close friends. They go to the same college. They live near each other. They talk to each other. They're friends enough to plan a 14-day camping trip together. But you're telling me the other seven didn't know about the secret radiation facility that these two students are working in? I can't say it's impossible, but it sure doesn't seem likely <laughs> at this point. Let's talk some of the conspiracies out there, Tom, real quick, because I mean, I know we're kind of getting... Yeah, we're getting towards the end, and the conspiracies go all over the place. And then for me, I think it's also, again, I know we said the year, 1959. Not only is that a long time ago, but it's also important to remember the state of Russia was not Russia. They were the Soviet Union. I don't necessarily trust Russia with disseminating information now, I surely would not trust 1959 Soviet Union. Most of the information that came out of this, though, we have the proof. Like, they gave it here, world. Here's what we have so far. I honestly think it's one of those incidents where they probably would have kept things quiet, but they had already let so much cat out of the bag. It's kind of hard to... Yeah, we can't take back the information you already know, but we can stop telling you stuff because I do know the lead investigator on May 28th, so May 5th is where they found the last bodies, the last bodies. By May 28th, the lead investigator closed the investigation and classified all further reports. So the information we have is it. No further information came out after that. So there might be some possible clues about what happened. We're just never going to know it. Well, and when was that? I want to say May 28th is when they ended it. So here's what the website says. The deaths of the expedition members were due to a series of mistakes by Dyatlov. February 1st, he began the ascent to the summit at 3 p.m., even though he knew about the difficulty of the terrain. Furthermore, 
And this was Dyatlov's next mistake. He chose a line 500 meters to the left of the planned pass that lies between peak 1079 and peak 880. So the group found themselves on the eastern slope of peak 1079. They used what was left of the daylight to ascend to the summit in strong winds and low temperatures of minus 25 degrees centigrade. Dyatlov found himself in bad conditions for the night, so he decided to pitch his tent on the slope so as to start in the morning without adding the distance from the forest to the remaining trek of about 10 kilometers to the summit. Uh, That was the official statement. And then, considering the absence of external injuries to the bodies or signs of a fight, the presence of all the valuables of the group, and also taking into account the conclusion of the medical examinations for the causes of death of the hikers, it was concluded that the cause of their demise was overwhelming force, which the hikers were not able to overcome. Yeah, I like the fact that, well, nothing was missing, so no crime. We don't need to go any further with this report. I'm like, yeah, I think you're missing some big chunks here. And then in September 2018, they did open up a new investigation. So some of those studies had started coming out from that investigation as well. And so the official story in 1959 when it was closed and the official 2019 investigation was that an avalanche caused the demise. That's one of the forces they speak about. So some of the conspiracy theories that that you see and hear, if you go deep enough down the rabbit hole, or sometimes not too deep at all, Yeti. So, you know, the abdominal snowman got them. UFOs. Of course. It's always UFOs. The Russian military. Now, that one, as we find out a couple years later, has a little bit more legs than the Yeti and the UFO. So there was several reports to the families of these from other hikers, because again, they weren't the only people in the area. They were the only people on that pass. But they weren't the only people near that mountain on the night of February 1st. And multiple other hiking groups reported seeing extremely bright lights in the sky on February 1st. While most people do not tend to lend credence to the UFO because of these bright lights, they do point out it was not uncommon for the Soviet Union military, KGB, etc., government agencies, to conduct experiments unannounced and in rural areas so that they didn't have to contend with large populations, and that there is the possibility that this is related to testing done by the Soviet military. Potentially. Yep. At this point, everything's potentially. (laughs) Could have been time travelers. So one of the stories that I heard that tried to explain like the location of the bodies and and everything that had happened is they, an avalanche hits, they cut their way out of the tent. All of them make the trek down to where the first two bodies were located and try to get fire to get warm. The group of four that were found in the ravine headed down the mountain to try to find further shelter. The other three, including Gatlov, were headed back up to the camp to try to salvage materials and such from the tent. The other two that were found initially, that were found by campfire, were basically left there. That's one of the uh, speculations. Um, One of the people that were found in the ravine did have on clothes of one of the other ones, one of the two that were found initially. 
So there's some speculation to say that, well, maybe those two died first and then they took their clothes off to... Yeah, and I've seen that several times where they're estimating that the two people found naked at the base of the tree were the first two dead. Let's talk about this real quick. So Russia reopens the investigation. A team of scientists from some country, I don't know where. Do you know where the slab avalanche people came from? Because it was actually published in 2021. Oh, yeah, as we mentioned, you know, there was a 2019 investigation from Russia. Uh, this other team decided they wanted to do some investigation as well. Um, and so this is actually an article that was published in Nature magazine by Johan Guam and Alexander Perzrin. Sure, that's exactly how you say that. I'm sure it's not, but it's okay. And so they go into very specific detail of looking at what could have potentially caused... Uh, this. And so reading from their article, you know, a snow avalanche hypothesis was proposed among other theories, but was found to be inconsistent with the evidence of lower than usual slope angle, uh, scarcity of avalanche signs, uncertainties about the trigger mechanisms, and abnormal injuries of the victims. The challenge of explaining these observations has led us to a physical mechanism for a slab avalanche caused by a progressive windblown snow accumulation on the slope above the hiker's tent. So it says here we show how a combination of irregular topography, a cut made by the, made in the slope to install the tent, and the subsequent deposition of the snow induced by strong winds contributed after a suitable time to the slab release, which caused several non-fatal injuries in agreement with the autopsy results. So basically what they're saying is that it was a small avalanche, not a large, you know, like you see in movies, you know, this like horrible avalanche, but just a small kind of slab of snow came down, hit the tent, and all of their studies that they did, and, and this, if you're interested in it, go to itsnature.com and you can and Google it and find it, or we can throw a link in the notes. I just think it's really important that the authors did, they show the math, they show all the incidents, but they are very clear that this is what they think is basically what sparked the incident on the night of February 1st and caused some of the injuries. They say repeatedly, we don't know what happened after that. I can't tell you why they're radioactive. You know, we can't account for any of that. We just think this is the initial incident that made them leave the tent. What happens after that? We have no idea. Yeah. And they break it down. I mean, very, very specifically, like you said, the math is all in this article. Um, it's very interesting. And they talk about, I mean, even a small cube of our slab of, uh, Ice could cause massive damage to the human body, very similar to that of a car crash. If you're out camping and a Buick pulled into your tent, unbeknownst to you, you're probably going to be a little disoriented and you're probably going to have some significant injuries. Fair enough. But this is the holes, again, like everything else with this, it leaves a lot to be said. So for instance, while this was a decent sized tent and there was nine people in it. Apparently, I read through the study and it was talking about like one cubic meter of snow can weigh up to 400 kilograms. Yes. And that moving at, you know, 15 to 20 kilometers an hour, when that lands on your chest, that can cause significant injury. I was like, yeah, that makes sense. If there's one, one cubic meter, there was nine people side by side. Only three of them had this significant injury. That does so that doesn't account for the rest of them. That doesn't account for why they cut their way out of the tent. Let's assume that they're discombobulated. We'll cut our way out of the tent 
instead of using the flap that's right next to me. Okay, fine. You do all that stuff. Then why would three people with severe internal injuries go 1,500 meters down and then 250 meters over And this avalanche is strong enough and weighs enough to cause these injuries, but it's also not big enough to injure the other six people in the tent. Like, it just doesn't make sense. I agree with your Buick metaphor or analogy. Which one is that? doesn't matter. The Buick. Buick hits them. It only hit three of them. So it ran through the whole tent, but it only injured three of the people. I'm pretty sure a Buick driving through your tent at 20 miles an hour is going to injure everybody, some more than others. But not all. And this is how you get into the conspiracy theory is of is like, well, exactly. Maybe it only hit half of the tent. Here's some of the what I can't rationalize. Number one, the radiation, unless there was testing going on. Fair. Okay. But then you would have thought more would have been radioactive. But anyway. Yes. Or everybody would have been radioactive. Yeah, exactly. One of the ones that was found in the ravine that had the massive skull damage, multiple fractures to the side of his skull that would have made him unable to move. And he walked that far? Or was he carried? So, okay, let's say he was carried. Okay, let's say he was carried by people with crushed ribs. That's the other part of it then. Okay, so let's say you get everybody out. You're making your way down. You're carrying the guy who can't move. Why wouldn't he have been one of the two that was left there? Like, why would he have been part of the four? Yes, or as we've said, no matter what, some studies make it seem like the tent was only partially damaged. Some say it was barely standing, but all. And they have pictures from the rescue crew of finding it. So we know for a fact, beyond any doubt, that the tent was still standing. So if a fucking avalanche hit it with enough force to crush your goddamn ribs and skull, how was the tent still standing? This is where things get out of control. And I'm like, wow, this is crazy. I am not an experienced hiker at all. I don't want to say I hate camping. I hate camping in tents. If I had a really cool RV, sure. But I went camping one time and there was a whole incident with raccoons and I'm done with it. I I don't want to do that anymore. But the point is, is every basic amount of training on anything in the wilderness says, if you have any sort of shelter, you stay with your shelter, especially in terrible weather conditions. That's what's going to save your life. So you're telling me that nine We'll say eight. We'll say that ninth guy who had all the levels of certification up to master, but not master. But the other eight master certified hikers and skiers said, hey, you know, the first rule, don't leave your your uh, shelter. Yeah, fuck that. We're going to go 1,500 meters down the ravine in our underwear and try and start a fire. At what point would they not say, OK, we're alive. We need to uh, reestablish our shelter, get our fire going inside the tent that we modified to have fires inside of, why would you leave that? Let's go back to the slab. Let's say the math is, well, the math is sound. Let's say the math is correct, and it did hit them. Two-thirds of your party is still viable with no problems. Why would that not be your first reestablish shelter, re-get the heat source going, and then get them out for help? Why would it be, hey, let's disperse in an even and unpanicked manner and then try and start a fire. It just doesn't make any sense. There's multiple layers of catastrophic failure that have to happen under the best condition, which is what makes it so hard to understand. Or, you know, maybe they all went crazy and... Maybe there was aliens. I don't, you know, who knows? It could be. It could be. You don't know. You don't know. Maybe they all couldn't wait till Cinco de Mayo 
And that's what they were shooting for. And the thing is, I mean, like we've said, you know, we're unfortunately never going to know. But we want to cover that just because it was some interesting injuries. Yeah, there's a lot of medical mystery there at the end. It took a while to get there. But once you got to him, I was like, oh, these are jewels. Like it took a minute to get to the medical part. But man, that medical part is a doozy. Ben, I really enjoyed doing this episode. And I think if people like listening to mysteries like this, that perhaps we could pick other weird things that have happened in history and dissect them and their medical bents as well. We certainly could. And they could find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube, all at Just Some Podcast. The website, www.justsomepodcast.com. Email us, admin at justsomepodcast.com. Tom, I wanted to end with, it is camping season. That's kind of what initially started this idea of the episode. And so there's some myths. This is a survival myth that could get you killed. Ooh. And so I thought maybe we could cover a couple of these and just, you know. Yeah, you don't want to end up with the, the new Dot Love Pass. You want to be making it home. So like one in here it talks about is you can eat anything that animals eat. Incorrect. That is a myth. It says, despite our shared biology, there's a massive difference between humans and other animals. Some animals may eat plants that happen to be edible for humans, but they could also eat plants that are dangerous to us. Specifically, birds are the worst animals to emulate as they gobble up a variety of berries, which, you know, who knows what they could do to us. Uh, squirrels, again, could cause some, some issues. So just because an animal's eating it doesn't mean that it's safe for you to eat. Next, cut and suck a snake bite, Tom. Don't ever do that. Well, not that I would, period, but I'm telling them don't do that. So just to give you the medical side of this, uh, the trick doesn't work. and It actually opens the victim up to a larger risk for infection by creating a bigger wound. And then it has the bacteria-laden human spit inside. So put on a dressing, get them to a healthcare provider. How about this one, Tom? Have you always heard that moss grows on the north side of trees? I have heard that. It's not always true. So those trees I see with moss 360 degrees, you're telling me that's not the north? Right, I know. So <laughs> in my area, it says here, in my area, I actually find more moss on the south side because it's sunnier and warmer there. So depending on the moss species and the local climate, moss can grow wherever conditions are most suitable. And here's one that I've actually dealt with, not camping, but just in general. I'm sure anybody who, I'm sure most people have dealt with this. You'll never get lost with GPS. Well... Anybody that's driven through downtown Indianapolis could tell you that's not true. Yeah, so. <laughs> I can remember one time with my wife, we uh, were going, I don't remember, what, we were off somewhere on vacation. And so we punched up the Walmart on the GPS and and it gets us to where it says that it is. And it is like, we're in the middle of like the woods somewhere. And I'm like, I don't think this is Walmart. <laughs> <laughs> this is not where I parked my car. Do not trust your GPS all the time. Lean-tos make great shelters. You know, you see those on the, the survival shows. Yeah. They specifically say down here that should not be your sleeping shelter. You need something with walls, a roof, and a doorway to stay warm and dry. However, I think the point some of the survival shows are trying to say is if your choice is laying in the dirt in the rain or making a lean-to, make the lean-to. But yes, I agree with that. Of course, I'm not staying anywhere there's not heat or air conditioning, so it doesn't matter to me. Here's one that I think you hear, drink your own urine to stay hydrated. No. But yeah, I mean, that's one of those that you see on all these survival yeah, shows. Yeah, no, I've seen it before. You know, as everybody knows, you know, urine's full of your body's waste products. 
Um, and it says here, if conditions are grim enough to inspire you to consider urine as a beverage, then you are most likely severely dehydrated. The urine of a dehydrated person should not be reintroduced into the human body under any circumstances. Pee can be handy in other ways. Use it to dampen clothing for evaporative cooling in hot climates, but don't drink it. Good factoid. I would like to say one thing. Don't ever cut out or try and cut out or suck out venom from a snake bite. It is two things. One, not every snake that bites you is venomous. So yeah, you're literally creating another way of getting hurt that you may not have been hurt in the first place. Second, a lot of people have camera phones with them. They have all this other information. Even if you don't have a signal, you can still take a picture. It is very helpful to the medical professional that you're going to be talking to, to be able to help identify what bit you. If you could take a picture, describe it, whatever, that is some useful information that you can do to help with the treatment of a snake bite because that determines possible anti-venoms or methods of treatment or what they have to do to help you. So that is something you can do to not make things worse. Sucking the poison out is not. And it doesn't work. It doesn't matter even if you do that. You can't suck it out. So that's not how it works. And the last one, Tom, for you. Oh, boy. This one should have a special place in your heart. Oh, God. What is it? This is a myth. Always play dead when you're attacked by a bear. <laughs> Jesus. And you know why this one has a special place in your heart? I know you know. So the general advice is to quietly back away from the bear. It says in the case of an actual attack, and this is from IFL Science, uh, your reaction strategy should depend on the bear and the type of attack. Never play dead if a black bear attacks. Always fight back. In most cases, a brown or grizzly bear attacks to defend itself or its cubs. At these times, it will warn you by making noise or pretending to charge. Back away from a defensive attack slowly. It says if the bear makes contact. Don't turn around. Play dead lying on your stomach with your hands over your neck. But in the rare case of a predatory attack, which comes with no warnings, or if the bear seems to be stalking you, fight for your life. Yeah. A couple of different things about the bear attacks here. So some bears will scavenge. So playing dead doesn't do anything but make you an easier morsel. Okay, so that's fact one. Fact two is, let's say you're going with the slowly back away thing, which I would agree with. And again, not a totally experienced person, but I've watched a lot of those shows where they do this. And that's some common advice. So it makes sense. The thing I've heard, and the reason you want to continue to face them as you slowly back away, is that if you like turn and run, you may actually trigger their predatory, like, oh, hey, that's food, and I want to chase it. And if you've ever been around a puppy and thrown a ball, you'll see that instinct kick in. Like, they can just be sitting there. You throw a ball, they will chase it. Same thing can happen with predatory animals. Like, suddenly, you become food when you were a threat previously. Fighting for your life and trying to be as big and as loud as possible is usually the most effective methods in fighting off any of these animals. But I got to be real honest. If you've ever seen The Revenant with Leonardo DiCaprio, I don't think a bear attack is going to go well for the vast majority of human beings in the world. What do you do if it's a bear attack in a zoo? You hunker down and text your wife <laughs> and tell her to get her ass into a locked building as soon as possible. Because if you're in, say, the Columbus, Ohio Zoo and bears happen to get loose, I'm just saying there's some useful information here. Yes, you want to sh seek shelter and contact your family who then thinks that you're full of shit 
yeah, they think you're being sarcastic about a bear attack because you guys happen to be in the bear exhibit. When you are, in fact, not lying or being sarcastic at all. Hashtag sarcasm about killed my family. Yes, and implore them loudly to get into a locked building as soon as possible with the small children that probably look like chicken nuggies to a freaking brown bear. So I'm just throwing that out there. Just, you know, might be an experience. I don't know. Yes, I don't know if that's ever happened. But if it has happened, this sounds like sound advice. Also, make sure you pick a building that's air conditioned if it's summertime. That's key and has a bathroom. And make sure that you broadcast on Facebook Live. <laughs> yes, yes. Because if you drink a 44-ounce lemonade and you're stuck in a building with armed security guarding the doors and no bathroom, shit's going to hit the fan. I'm just throwing that out there. Yeah, I mean, that may have been the beginnings of this podcast. I don't know, but... <laughs> <laughs> Proof that people will listen to us talk. On that note, we still love you, Jack Hanna. Get your vaccine, wash your hands, wear your mask. Have a great week. Hey, everybody, make sure you stay safe out there. Watch out for bears at the Columbus Zoo. Practice swearing just to pass the time. Lately, I see why. Some road bridge and I thought of you.